Hello, and welcome back to Bad Gays, a podcast about evil, uncomplicated gay men in history. My name is Ben Miller. I'm a writer, researcher, and member of the board of the Gay Museum in Berlin. On this show, we look back at some villains and complicated people from gay history and try to ask why we don't learn from or think about them as much as we learn from and think about our heroes. So thanks to our Patreon supporters, um, our second season is going to be coming in the fall. And uh, if you're interested in supporting us on Patreon, you can uh, learn more at patreon.com slash badgayspod. But that response and the response from our other listeners has been so overwhelming that we wanted to throw you guys a few special episodes uh, between seasons, talking to friends and colleagues, writers, thinkers, artists, um, who would come on and have conversations with us about some bad gays from their experience and bad gays from their research to kind of broaden the scope of our interest a little bit and uh, look at some folks that we might not get to on our own. And so today I am very happy to introduce you all to the brilliant and hilarious Sholem Kristalka, who is an artist and writer behind the Berlin Diaries and whose work is currently being shown at the Periton Gallery in New York. Welcome, Sholem. Thank you. Long-time listener, first-time caller. I think it's the first time that anyone has called. Well, fair enough. Uh, and there's no one else that we would have liked to call first. Hmm. So, uh, Sholem, who are you going to be telling us about today? I'm going to be telling you all about uh, Andy Warhol today. And um, regular listeners of the podcast might be slightly alarmed at my choice of subject matter because in the sort of rogues gallery that you and Hugh have collected, uh, Andy Warhol certainly is... um, He doesn't quite uh, hit the heights that, say, uh, Leopold and Loeb or Ernst Rehm or uh, Roy Cohn does. Um, So I intend Warhol as a kind of a... sort of a provocation, in a way. Um, He wasn't a Nazi. He never murdered anybody. uh, And um, nor did he ever espouse any kind of, like, violently retrograde uh, personal philosophies. He, I, I like to think of Andy Warhol as um, a bad gay by straight standards. Huh, that's interesting. And I think there are some people that we've looked at uh, already in the course of the series who do kind of fit that mark. I mean, um, Anthony Blunt, for example, is the, you know, when people ask you and I, well, which one of them do you have the most sympathy for? I think we always say Blunt because mm. You know, you totally understand how an idealistic person in the 1930s looking at the rise of fascism before Stalin uh, finds uh, becoming a Soviet spy a sort of compelling response to the conditions of his life. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so I intend Warhol as a kind of, like... While he's not... I wouldn't necessarily say he's a bad gay. He's certainly not a nice gay. And I do love him for that. Um, so that's why I wanted to talk to him today, to talk about his sort of various strange complications um, and, and eccentricities and uh, lapses of judgment and persona. Um, so, yeah. Uh, shall we? Let's do it. Let's do it. So, Shobham, why don't you start by giving us kind of a sketch. Uh, remind us who Warhol was. Uh, remind us of some... Sort of things about his life story for those of us who might have 
very clear images in our heads. Uh, if we sort of close our eyes and we think of endless Prince of Maryland and soup cans and this sort of wispy elfin figure, but mm. maybe we're not sure how the whole thing kind of fit together. Yeah, um, Warhol is, is kind of most famously and most broadly known as a pop artist. Uh, in fact, I encourage listeners to look up the Wikipedia page of Warhol on their phones, and the first image you will see is his forehead with the silver wig. Uh, of course, most sort of famous for that. He's also most famous for um, being the kind of ringleader of the factory, which was his artist studio come uh, social gathering place come party haven, uh, which, yeah, like as I said, functioned as his home base um, throughout his career. Uh, he, among other things, launched the career of Nico. He produced the Velvet Underground's first album um, and was also very famously shot by Valerie Solanas. Um, author of the Scum Manifesto. Shot as in with a camera or with like a gun? Shot with a gun. Shot with a gun. Uh, which the, he was shot in 1968. Uh, Valerie Solanas claimed that he had too much control over her life. Um, had they ever met? Yes. She was trying to get um, a script produced through him and everyone at the factory was being very evasive with her and she eventually just sort of barged in and shot him. Uh, the resulting, uh, she shot him and she shot someone else who was there, an art historian. The art historian got off with very, got off. The art historian uh, suffered very minor wounds. Warhol uh, was injured to the extent that he had to wear um, a kind of a truss for the rest of his life. Um, in 1987, he was hospitalized for routine, uh, for what they thought was fairly routine surgery, I think like gallbladder surgery or something like that. Anyway, the complications as a result of um, his sort of, his injuries, which had accreted over the years, um, resulted in his death from cardiac arrest while recovering from the surgery. Um, I myself encountered Warhol as an art student and I immediately resented him. Um, Me too. Well, it's hard, I, yeah. I think, and, and I didn't, I mean, I didn't, I never encountered him as a practicing artist because I'm not a practicing artist, mm. but my first encounters with Warhol were being a teenager or whatever and going into the kind of contemporary wing of the museum and there would be this very kind of flat, expected, almost branded object and it would just be like god what is that doing here and why is why is it the size of the wall and why are there a hundred of them and what is this yeah and i think it led to resentment um just kind of comparatively with having with looking at other work sure i mean i resented him in much the same way for those reasons i also resented him because the more i found out about him um the more his culture of cool uh, struck me as irritating and alienating and a replication of all of the high school dynamics that we all try to get away from in our later years and as gay men invariably end up repeating in our own social circles. Um, Warhol was redeemed for me 
in some sense by Wayne Kostenbaum's biography of him, which is fantastic, by the way. So how then does Warhol start to be redeemed a little bit for you? Because embarrassingly enough to admit for me, he sort of never has. Like I've just, one of the reasons that I'm excited to have this conversation with you is because I've actually never spent that much time thinking about Warhol because I've never, I've just always been kind of unconvinced by at least having seen the work. So what was it that started kind of to do it for you? Yeah, Warhol was redeemed for me through two things. One is Alice Neal's portrait of him post-surgery uh, after his, his gunshot wound, um, in which she paints his sort of scarred, naked, untrust torso. And this man who was so passive and so blank um, all of a sudden becomes a, a terribly vulnerable human being. The second bit of, of, uh, the second bit of information that redeems him for me was a bit of gossip that circulated around him. He wanted very much to be associated at the beginning of his career with Leo Castelli's stable of artists. Uh, for those not in the know, Leo Castelli was kind of the main dealer for all of the big, hot, heavy, abstract expressionist and, uh, and proto-pop artists like Willem de Kooning and Jasper Johns and Robert Rauschenberg. Jasper Johns and Robert Rauschenberg were one of the two power couples of New York at the time in the 60s. The other was Merce Cunningham and John Cage. Uh, Warhol wanted very much to be in this sort of same social circle as Rauschenberg and Johns, and they told the filmmaker Emilio D'Antonio that they wouldn't want to associate with Warhol because he was too swish. <laughs> and they were worried that Warhol's gayness would give them away. Um, so again, like these moments of vulnerability are the thing that kind of gave me access to him, uh, and gave me some in to, as you said, a, a body of work that seems kind of puzzling and impenetrable for its flatness. Um, and in the end, I came to find that very flatness also sympathetic. Because in point of fact, um, Warhol very famously said of his work that everything you needed to know about it is on the surface. And art historians, of course, as the art historical and the art critical climate of the day was, um, it tended towards a very kind of like heavy modernist interpretation um, where you know, there were embedded metaphors and embedded codes and this gesture meant that and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And Warhol, um, to say that he refused all that is a bit of a misnomer, um, or maybe misnomer is uh, the wrong word. Uh, to say that he refused all that is, is not quite right. He liked things and so he painted them. So there is a kind of a literalness to his work, which at first, as you, as you did, I found kind of alienating because one is kind of trained to go into a museum and look for deeper meaning, and that just doesn't exist for Warhol. And I think that's the charm of his work um, 
and that's um, I don't know if genius is quite the right word, but it certainly was a very radical gesture for a modernist art world intent on ubermenschen with grand ideas. And I think it's interesting too because I mean part of an old dismissive sort of joke about Warhol that I had with a with a friend is you know we'd go to a museum and and one of us would say look there on the wall look it's a real Warhol and the other would say well what's the difference like what is like what does that even mean what is the what is the statement a real Warhol yeah what, like what positive meaning does that have at all and as, as though that were kind of a as though that were sort of a way to on its own dismiss the work but then I think about um, all kinds of work. Um, whether it's involving ready-mades or whether it's involving other kinds of mass-produced stuff um, that I don't have that response to. And there's a sense in which Warhol is the person who opens up the space for that to be valued as artistic production. Yeah. Or am I, or is that a total misreading of, of No, I don't, I mean, I don't really think there's such a misreading, but so I have very many responses of the, to this, to your, to your reading. The first is that Warhol continues to be sort of, um, in, in the sort of wildly speculative art market, Warhol continues to be a gold standard. Uh, he was referred to as the bellwether of the art market um, uh, in that you see he, he represents his work represents a sort of a cons consistently good investment um, my other response to that is that come what may I think there to my my reading of the artistic personae of the 20th century is that Picasso defines its first half and Warhol defines its latter half uh, and so he assumes a kind of a primacy that just has to be dealt with. Uh, my third reaction to what you're saying is that I think Warhol himself would appreciate the question of like, oh, there's a real Warhol, what's the difference? Um, yeah, like, or like, what does that even mean? Like, what is the, what is the meaning of the term a real Warhol? What is the meaning of having the, what is the character, or what's different about the character of having an interaction with an actual, I'm making air quotes here, yeah. soup can print and looking at a picture of a soup can print on the internet. Well, I mean, Warhol himself was very savvy in the way that he made his work. So he's sort of famously, uh, he, he famously worked with silkscreen on canvas and there was sort of these kind of urgent blotchy underpaintings that he would silkscreen on top and then he would silkscreen colors on top of that. In the production, um, he put glue on the silkscreen surface so that it would cloak as, you know, the way you do a silkscreen is you essentially push ink through a fine mesh. And if you put glue on the mesh, it blocks some of the holes. So you never get a consistent print. You never get an image that looks exactly the same one to the next. So even on his sort of paintings of Jackie O or his paintings of Marilyn where there's a repeated image in a grid, one image is never quite the same. Uh, and it was, in effect, a very savvy way of ensuring that this would be a unique and therefore highly saleable and highly expensive object. So how does Warhol go from being this kind of fey, socially rejected striver in the New York City art world 
to being the market gold standard um, and seems to do it within his own lifetime. I mean, what, is that, what does that process look like and how does that kind of social process map onto the different kind of stages or phases of his body of work? There are kind of two ways, there are two ways that that happens. One is within the art world and one is without. The art world in the 60s, in the 50s and 60s was still very, very small. Um, one of my favorite stories about the art world in New York is that it didn't really matter who you were, whether you were de Kooning or whether you were just sort of Joe Schmo who worked in the studio next to de Kooning, because of the real estate prices and the small kind of self-enclosed art world of the 50s, of the 50s um, it was very sort of, uh, as a, yeah, self-enclosed and sort of socially horizontal. That sounds kind of dreamy. It is kind of... I want cheap rent. It is kind of dreamy, but, you know, that was now, what, 70 years ago? <sighs> New York, 70 years ago. Uh, anyhow, uh, so we could all lift in mm. cold water, cold water lofts in Soho. <laughs> Which we paid $14 a year for in exactly. rent. Exactly. Anyway, um, so his sort of encounters with the art world have a much greater reverberance simply because the art world is much smaller. Um, so for instance, when he exhibited his Brillo boxes, Arthur Danto, who's a prominent art critic of the time, um, called it the death of painting. He wasn't um, entirely wrong. He wasn't entirely wrong. He wasn't entirely right either, and he later uh, backpedaled very furiously about that. So there's sort of that aspect to it. Um, the other aspect to it is that the factory kind of worked as a publicity machine and as a PR machine. And so um, his, uh, his output wasn't strictly limited to paintings. He founded Interview Magazine, Via Interview Magazine, he courted uh, celebrity culture, and so much of the celebrity portraits that he made were via those channels. Um, and then uh, those inroads into popular culture, which I think were sort of revolutionary for an artist to have made, um, you know, pop artists had never, I think before him, really broken out in such a in such a massive way from the confines of the art world um, and so he from he he eventually paid the price for it in the art world and his career had a terrible dip in the 70s um, where people accused him of being a business artist rather than a fine artist so maybe Warhol, through his practice, is actually one of the people who starts to break down that old art world and create something that looks more like what we know now, where there's this sort of enormous amount of public relations energy behind everything. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Warhol is certainly one of the instrumental figures in bringing the art world closer to the world of celebrity and fashion. Uh, of course, Warhol was... Um, uh, one of the sort of queen bees of Studio 54. Um, I mentioned that while he's not exactly in the same league as Roy Cohn, he certainly did party with Roy Cohn. Um, and I was, strangely, I was surprised to find out that he didn't make a portrait of Roy Cohn. I thought, I swore he did. Um, 
But so this is where Warhol. Ray Cohn probably wouldn't have wanted it. Uh, well, maybe he would have. It's really it was, debatable. Uh, maybe um, he would have because you know, especially for the sort of New York scene of the seventies, you know, you think about those uh, Warhol portraits of Liza or something. But that's just kind of what you did if you were a, if you were big in the New York City seventies scene. You had your portrait done by Andy. Sure, not just by Liza, but by all these sort of New York socialites. Uh, and in the seventies, he started courting the Shah of Iran. And there was sort of a joke that the factory had a private jet that just went from Tehran to New York and back. Uh, huh. And um, this, again, kind of got him into trouble with the art world. And this is, I think, where we start to talk about the sort of the bad gay aspect of him. Um, because his affiliation with these celebrities and these figures of royalty, of international royalty, kind of unearthed his apolitics. Um, Warhol never really had any politics. He never really had any sort of like big critical statements in his work. Um, people read them into it. Uh, so for instance, he's very famous for his electric chair Series and there was a lot of sort of political talk about his electric chair series. I think really he painted the electric chairs because he thought they looked nice. That was really why he did everything. Like he painted Elvis because he thought Elvis was hot. He painted Marilyn because he was obsessed with like Hollywood glamour. Um, there wasn't anything intrinsic about, you know, the iconicity of Marilyn. He just loved Marilyn Monroe and wanted to see her decked in gold, and so he did. Um, in the 80s, he cozied up, uh, or he attempted to, co the factory attempted to cozy up with the Reagans, because they were desperate to get an official portrait commission by, of Nancy Reagan. Um, and this is during the 1980s when many of the people at the factory and certainly many of the people who had known and loved them or who had been through there are dying of AIDS while the Reagan administration basically sits back and laughs at all the dying things. Exactly. So this is where it begins kind of to get the question of politics and Andy Warhol and politics and Andy Warhol's work begins to get complicated. Or not complicated, just blank because he he was a blank he was a cipher he wasn't a political creature uh he never made any sort of large ethical statements i think he did one political thing very early in his career which was to make uh, uh campaign buttons for um, um a democrat's re-election campaign this was in the late 50s so if this kind of apolitics or non-politics is maybe one of the ways that Warhol is a bad gay, um, and I think certainly that fits into some of the people that we've looked at on the in the episodes in the first season, people who uh, are sort of fascinated with surface and fascinated with a particular kind of social ascent and who don't really care so much about what gets shoved under the rug or who gets pushed out of the way in order for them to ascend. Um, maybe in some ways Warhol is kind of a Bosey-ish figure. Um, if that's one way in which he's a bad gay, I think another interesting way, or another interesting kind of place to open up a conversation about the relationship between 
Warhol's sexuality and his complicatedness is to think a little bit more about his sexuality as um, expressed in some of his more frankly sexual work and um, how that work made space for a certain kind of very frank gay desire in the art world, maybe, um, and maybe in some other ways um, was considered to be sort of too bad or too explicit um, by gay artists who were trying to remain closeted. Am, am I making any sense here? Ish. Ish. I mean, gay, like, Warhol's own sexuality is in and of itself uh, the subject of a lot of speculation. Um, uh, Wayne Kostenbaum in his biography talks about uh, Warhol's body being perpetually troubled. Um, he had scarlet fever when he was a kid, and this was sort of, like, um, left him with with uh, facial scars and his, his sort of his pallor was a direct result of that. Um, but you know, he was a fey, pale, remote weirdo. Sounds and, like most of my best friends. Yeah, right. And so in this respect, like I said, there are these sort of like these moments of, of like real vulnerability in Warhol where you just go like, oh. Uh, how can you not have sympathy for like a fey, pale, remote weirdo who just you know who just wants to be friends? Um, by all accounts, his own sexual life was sort of uh, occupied. He was like a fraught queen. This was like occupied some sort of weird nether region, nether region between voyeurism and like frottage. There was all this sort of gossip. <laughs> There's like, the nether regions between voyeurism and frottage. You know, <laughs> I want to build a summer house there. It's yeah, it's uh, it's 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 one of the it's one of the landscape. It's one of the dents in the landscape of gay sexuality. Um, you know, there are these sort of gossipy his first, but there's these sort of gossipy accounts of having his boyfriends just sort of like their version of sex was to just sort of like rub up and down on him. Again, it's like it's really hard to kind of make any conclusions one way or another. Because invariably, when people talk about Warhol, people talk about Warhol as an endower of status to them. Uh, so in as much as Warhol was kind of seemingly negligent of the like ludicrous human disaster parade that was sort of floating by him on a regular basis, um, he attracted a lot of people who wanted to kind of leech off of his status. And isn't it fascinating that somebody who starts out just wanting a kind word or a kind face or a dinner invitation ends up being the kind of industrial conferrer of status upon this kind of vast conveyor belt of people who run the gamut from incredibly talented, brilliant weirdos to just like, you know, young, dumb, and... Full of cum? <laughs> you said it, I didn't. Um, yeah, and, and again, like, I, it's... And it's this aspect of Warhol which, which, I, which always gave me trouble uh, because I have trouble with gatekeepers of any kind. Um, and, um, so yeah, but the thing is, is there is a specific, there is a, not a specific, there is a particular kind of, 
of like genius in there because what Warhol knew or seemed to have known from the get-go is that all of it takes to be beautiful is to be surrounded by beautiful people. Um, and so, you know, most of the sort of the most famous people from the factory, the poet Gerard Malanga and Joe D'Alessandro, um, they were like gorgeous, gorgeous boys and they reflected a beauty onto him. He, in turn, reflected a status onto them. And that's kind of what makes the factory a bit kind of icky sicky is that it's sort of this perpetual st this high school status game uh, and right and it's it's not a kind of joyous collective of people kind of unleashing trouble on the world and a sort of conspiracy of three people a conspiracy of however many people kind of among themselves against the world it's very much it is a factory i mean the raw material is the talent and beauty of young people, and the machinery is Andy Warhol, and the result is a particular kind of superstar. Yeah, I mean, and the question of the question of superstar is also uh, a bit sort of fraught and difficult. I mean, Warhol thought, I think, I think Warhol thought, haha, that all these people were kind of vaguely hilarious. Uh, and the whole idea of them being superstars, of them being this sort of ersatz Hollywood system, um, he thought that was a bit of a joke. Uh, I mean, that's certainly what he thought of the three uh, transgendered individuals who kind of like floated through Hollywood lawn, Jackie Curtis and Candy Darling. They themselves referred, they, I think they actually were the, word, the ones to coin the phrase superstar in reference to them. And Andy Warhol and Gerard Malanga and Paul Morrissey, who was sort of another one, of, who was like one of the real business heads of the factory, thought that it was just hilarious that these three heavily scare quotes, trigger warning, fake women, uh, could possibly be equal to a Hollywood starlet. Um, and it's not that we think that they're fake women, it's that, the, it's that the, the idea, the falseness of their womanhood is to some sense, in some sense propagated as a joke by some of the other members of the factory um, as part of this kind of cosmic joke of producing weirdos at this scale kind of as a social sculpture, as an art piece. Yeah, and, and um, I mean, so for instance, in the movie Trash, which sort of launched Hollywood Lawn to sort of countercultural cult stardom, she's the girlfriend of Joe D'Alessandro, and it's part of the in-joke of the movie that this kind of gangly, weird, again, trigger warning, half-man, half-woman would be the love object of this, like, the Apollonian beauty of Joe D'Alessandro. So, like, their whole, the, the sort of, it, the whole kind of reigning mentality of the factory itself was really kind of quite vicious uh, and mean and um, was this sort of, like, constellation of status seekers and drug-addicted heiresses and vicious personalities, all kind of jockeying for um, 
in-crowd fame via Warhol himself. And he was the kind of blank sun at the center of it all. I think it's interesting now because in the past few years especially, I think there's been a real desire to reclaim and celebrate, and I think this is both you know understandable and, and wonderful and important, uh, to reclaim and celebrate um, Curtis and Woodlawn and Darling as these some of the sort of the first publicly known trans feminine personalities. Um, did any of them ever comment on their kind of complicated relationship with this Warholian fame machine, which on the one hand turned them into real icons of trans femininity at a time when there were not so many of those, um, and on the other hand seems to have been laughing at them as much as it was laughing with them? I, Holly Woodlawn was the one who really kind of shot to to a to a much broader fame um george cooker uh um, nominated her for an oscar uh for her role in trash george um, cooker by the way who um, had one of the longest directing careers of anyone in hollywood directed the wonderful uh 1930s film the women with joan crawford and norma shearer was one of the several directors who was involved with the wizard of oz at various points um, directed uh, Star is Born with Judy Garland, uh, and yes, was himself a gay, uh, as you might imagine from the fact that he directed um, many of the very gayest Hollywood musicals and movies ever made. Maybe the second gayest classic film director after Vincent Minnelli? Quite possibly. Also, parenthetically, he directed the only uh, Soviet-American co-production uh, it's a bizarre film that's based on a Russian folktale which stars Jane Fonda, Cicely Tyson, Eva Gabor, um, a host of other people, and members of the Bolshoi Ballet. My I think it's called, it's called Bluebird. Any hoodle. Oh, it also stars Liz Taylor. Um, <laughs> Wait a minute, what? Yeah, yeah. Way to bury the lead there. Sorry, all those people. Um, so, in answer to your question... Uh, you know, they were all kind of really done wrong by the factory, but they were all sort of too drug addicted to notice. Um, Woodlawn is the only one, to my knowledge, who ever said anything publicly much later in life saying that, um, you know, she got all this fame from her association with the factory, but she never got a cent. Uh, uh, if you read, I highly suggest the reading of Holly Woodlawn's autobiography, A Low Life in High Heels. It's wonderful. Uh, and in that, she says that for her work on Trash, she was only paid $25 a day. Jesus. And this is a feature film. She was making a feature film. Um, and at this point, you know, Warhol is doing pretty well selling work. I mean... Oh, I mean, he can afford to be running an entire factory in midtown Manhattan. Um, He's probably snorting tens of thousands of dollars a day. Uh, yeah, I mean, in the 70s, he withdrew from public life because of a lot of his criticism from the art world of having sort of sold out and being more of a business artist. But anyway, the point remains is that, like, on, the hum on a human level, um, 
uh, nobody was ever really <laughs> this this might sound maybe a bit sort of like Oprah therapy styles uh, but nobody was ever really cared for <laughs> nobody really cared if Candy Darling was taking other people's medications. Nobody really cared that, you know, this person was on heroin. Nobody really cared when Andrea Feldman jumped from a balcony and landed on her feet and crushed the lower half of her body in the middle of Manhattan because she was too high on PCP. Like, the... It was all just part of this kind of cosmic joke. Yeah, well, it was all just sort of part of the regular toings and froings of the factory, and, you know, well, there goes one, and here comes another. Uh, the art critic Robert Hughes um, uh, said in one of his essays about Warhol that anyone who had any kind of business to get on with stayed away from the factory. So, for instance, Lou Reed, once, they had, once the Velvet Underground had um, finished their first album which Warhol paid for, uh, he kind of took, he, he went his merry way. Um, uh, Probably smartly so. Smartly so. Well, you know, he was a man with his own ideas about how his music wanted to be made and uh, I think wanted to sort of, uh, he had drug problems of his own <laughs> also. <laughs> no. Yeah, I know. Shocking. Um, yeah. How Lou long, Reed? How long is the song Heroin? Um, anyway, all of this to say that these kind of sides of Warhol, on the one hand, extremely vulnerable, I think, to the end of his days, extremely vulnerable, um, profoundly sort of human in that vulnerability and in that sort of bodily weakness, uh, compared with this kind of, like, sort of cipher-like disregard for politics, ethics, the well-being of others, combined with this sort of insane um, status-seeking publicity machine, combined with a real business savvy about negotiating his place in the art market and in the wider celebrity world makes for a portrait of someone who, you know, gives one pause, certainly shouldn't be leading any pride parades. So I have two more questions, and then we can wrap this up. The first one would be, I think it's really interesting that Warhol still has this kind of countercultural credibility in a strange way. I mean, we're talking about um, Lou Reed and the sort of first Velvet Underground album, and I think even though by now that's all very much kind of disseminated through all of the cultural systems, and it's all very, very many years ago, um, I think everyone that I could think of sort of hears that and has this feeling of like hearts giving a beat and you know, oh my goodness, what this is like wonderful sort of bohemia, whatever. Yeah, sure. What Warhol himself is doing at the time is silk screening images of consumer products. And what's happened since then is that his silk screen images of consumer products have themselves become the most valuable consumer products 
that exist and that have ever yeah. existed. And yeah. they are $100 million Campbell's soup cans. Yeah. And they now circulate in exactly the same way they are in every museum. Uh, Warhol's images are as embedded in the sort of daily media grind of the culture as what he was depicting. Yeah, absolutely. What is that? How, do, how can those two things exist at the same time? Or is that part of his brilliance? Like, how is it not just the most... I mean, and I think it is utterly banal. I think Warhol is utterly banal to me on the level of the work. But still, when we talk about the factory or when we talk about... Um, you know the filmmaking, or when we talk about um, associations with folks like with folks like Lou Reed, you still feel this kind of um, affect of excitement for uh, or interest in the kind of countercultural something of it, um, even though we're just talking about the blandest mass media crap. Yeah, my response to that is sort of twofold. On the one hand, um, that's there. There is like the mo the the deeper irony not just of a sort of like his sort of images of consumer products, which are then being sold as sort of broader, huger, much more expensive consumer products. The deeper irony is that as they circulate in museums, they're given an anti-consumerist critical interpretation. <laughs> uh, and this is... I never bought that. I remember, I remember seeing that and just thinking, yeah, this is not, there's nothing... Oh sure, I mean Benjamin Buclow. Benjamin Buclow, who is a, a sort of very uh, famous and influential uh, art theorist, deconstructed Andy Warhol's uh, 15 Minutes of Fame" quote as being the sort of critical statement about the like the dissolution of all hierarchies, and it's just sort of a function of the art world that sort of no matter where you get off on the elevator, somebody is going to be there to greet you to sort of produce reams of jargon copy attesting to the critical brilliance of your work. It's just the way the world works. Well, yeah, because that jargon copy is then part of what holds up the value and what holds up, like, all of this is valuable, all of this is circulating, all of this is held, and so, like, at this point, Warhol must have been a great artist and must have been a great artist in this kind of critique oriented way that we imagine a great artist having to be now. Yeah, I mean, I do think, so before I get to that, I will say that the other part of my, the other part of my answer is that the reason he holds such a fascination, I think, is that despite all of us knowing everything, despite all of us knowing better, nevertheless, there's something like deeply embedded in our sort of tribalist human code that wants into the in crowd. And that's the sort of ultimate seduction that he, uh, that he sort of propagates. And maybe doubly so, because that is such a gay mode. I mean, the wanting to be in the center of a social circle so badly and being kind of obsessed with surfaces and with fame and with the kind of recycling or adaptation of these images, I mean, it's very, very, very gay, isn't it? Yeah, and also, um, let's not kind of, I don't think it's an overinterpretation to say that the factory was, in a sense, a kind of a chosen family, which is also another, a real, a sort of like a gay mode of a sort of a self-organized 
a self-organized social setting. Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, he repre he's sort of at the center of a lot of very seductive, uh, uh, very seductive ideas of um, which are none of which are particularly uh, none of which are particularly nice. You know, elitism and social hierarchy and uh, the in crowd and you know sure there's the kind of like wonderful seductive myth of New York Bohemia um, but he really he really did he wanted to and he did construct his own private star system and that system was powerful enough that it led someone like Valerie Solanas to shoot him because she couldn't get into it Exactly. I mean, if you watch, like, uh, if you the if you watch, I shot Andy Warhol, um, Mary Heron's biopic about uh, Solanas. Um, it really kind of it's a it's a fantastic film, and it really kind of wrenches at everyone's like inner high school reject. Uh, and yeah, yeah. And when she said that she had, that he had too much control over her life, in a sense, this is what she was talking about. Well, that kind of brings us full circle, I think. So at the end of our episodes, we Hugh and I would always kind of ask each other, um, gay, yes or no, bad, yes or no. Um, complicated is also an option. Mm -hmm. um, my ruling on Warhol is gay, yes, bad, it's complicated. Do you have one? Gay, absolutely, maybe one of the gayest uh, of all time. What was um, that phrase you came up with? The uncanny valley between voyeurism and frottage? Yeah. That's, yeah, that's the best I'll definition. Leave, I'll leave that as my contribution to, to gay history. Um, any hoodle. <laughs> so, gay, 100% more gay than I think any of us have ever been. Um, bad? <sighs> Complicated? Yes. Bad, I really kind of want to say yes. And I want to say yes with the proviso that I think that there should, that the artistic temperament in and of itself has a lot of room for badness. Uh, and gay artists historically are kind of like littered with damaged personalities, bad habits, cruel intentions. Uh, and sort of like general misanthropic behavior. But enough about my personal life show, let's right. talk about Andy Warhol. But <laughs> I will say that really like, there, that I, I can't in all good conscience say that he is bad um, because there's just the font of it is so much vulnerability and, uh, and so much kind of, um, so much uh, soft humanity, let's say, that we'll just leave it at complicated and we'll also just leave it at the fact that like, as much as I might resent the in crowd, I also want in too. Don't we all? Well, you're certainly part of our in crowd here at Bad Days Sholem and thank you so much for joining us. If people would like to learn more about you or keep in touch with you or follow along with you, where might they do that? Uh, the best place to find me in any active capacity is on Instagram at Sholem K, S-H-O-L-E-M-K. 
Okay. You do not do the Twitter? I do not do the Twitter. There was too much shouting. Um, I am currently in an exhibition at the Periton Gallery in New York, so any New York listeners are encouraged to go and check that out. Um, otherwise, I am in and around and about and circulating in the bloodstream of the media as best I can. I, too, am circulating in the uh, dark eddies of the interwebs on Twitter at Ben Writes Things. You can follow the show on Twitter at Bad Gaze Pod, and you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash badgazepod. Thanks so much. Till next time. Mm-hmm.